Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. For those listeners not familiar with Euros Hartley's, We are a proudly Western Australian, diversified financial services company. We specialise in wealth management, stockbroking, corporate finance, institutional sales and targeted research services. If you would like to learn more about the services we can provide, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. We'd be really happy to help out. This episode... We are so fortunate to have as our special guest on the show, Mr. Paul Moore, the founder, chair and chief investment officer of PM Capital, based in Sydney. Paul is over in Perth for a couple of days and we are so grateful he could take some time out to join us. Paul began his investment management career in 1985, approaching nearly 40 years ago. And he has seen a lot over this time, as you can imagine, in building out what has been a very successful funds management and business career. We cover off on Paul's upbringing in Melbourne and Sydney, his love of AFL footy, how he came to become an investment management professional, and how he arrived at his first investment management role at such a young age with BT Investment Management, which was so formative to his future pathway. We cover off on family, starting his own business, PM Capital, in 1998, and the challenges of doing this at the height of the tech boom of the late 90s. We look at investing through crises and significant market movements, and then drill down on the challenges of present day investing, including inflation, interest rates, Russia, labor supply, supply chain constraints, electrical vehicles and the future facing battery metals, oil, gold, and the potential outlook for the stock market with all this in mind. Paul is also a former board member of the GWS Giants in the AFL, and he gives us an insight into the challenges of football in New South Wales. We cover so much in this episode, it's a real opportunity and a privilege to be able to have a chat with someone with so much experience and who is incredibly interesting. So without further ado, it gives me a huge pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, Mr. Paul Moore. Hi Paul, and thanks very much for joining us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It really is a pleasure to have you, and particularly given you're based in Sydney and over visiting Perth and being able to take the time out, we really do appreciate it. And so on behalf of all of us, and the listeners, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, Paul, there is plenty to talk about. You're a 36-year veteran in the funds management and investing game, and we can't wait to dig deeper into that. But before we do so, as part of Finding the Front, one of the key things about it is learning a bit about your background and things that have shaped you in your life that have deemed a part of your success going forward and your outstanding career. And so, 
just doing a little bit of homework and understanding a little bit from our conversations in the past, you grew up in Melbourne. As a young child, yeah, until I was about 12, 13. Did that develop a passion for AFL? Yeah, I mean, from, I don't know, four or five, I was bugging my parents to kind of go down to the local park and play with the local team. And actually, my mother promised that I would never play AFL. She didn't like it too rough. But eventually, I think I just snuck out one Sunday morning and bugged the coach on the sideline and eventually put me on, kicked a goal, and then it uh, all went from there. So, yeah, it's stayed with me ever since. Back line or forward line? So, first game as a little kid was in the goal square, yeah, four or five. Mainly, I mean, over a long period of time, you play every position, but mainly uh, centre-half forward. Fantastic. So, you moved to Sydney when you were around 12, 13? Yes, and where did you end up going to school in Sydney? Karingai High, which is in North Taramara. So, yeah, very different experience to Wesley College. You went from uh, having full-sized MCG fields to basically hopping on a bus and, you know, travelling to try and find somewhere to either play footy or athletics or whatever it was. So, yeah, it, yeah. Was, a, it was an absolute, well, back then, no internet, yeah, no f- mobile phones. So to be honest, as a kid who just loved playing footy, it was like landing on the moon. It was a different country. You know, the only AFL you got up there was the Saturday afternoon you know, broadcast from Melbourne. So yeah, no, it was a, it was a challenge. Which part of Sydney did you move to? Uh, is up in the north? Yeah, so we're up north, uh, Warunga. So yeah. uh, basically lived in the north you know, my entire uh, life in Sydney. So you know, St Ives, Warunga, Terry Hills now. Yes. Tell me, when you look back at your schooling, I often ask this, but did you enjoy your schooling and was it formative? Were you good at it? It was interesting because, as I say, I went from a private school in Melbourne to a public school in Sydney and, as I say, it was like landing on the moon. So, very different experience. Uh, You pretty much had to climb your own way through the system. And so, if you were self-motivated, which I always have been, you could handle it. But I think if you weren't, you would have just dropped out of the system. It's interesting because when I graduated high school and went on to university, there was only a handful of us that actually, from the school that went to university. Right. So probably wasn't you know, the most academically talented group, but I think a lot of that was just different resourcing and whatever. So once you get to uni, you know, you've really got to stand on your own two feet. And I think that was the benefit of going to a public school because you really had to stand on your own two yeah, feet. Yeah, you had to learn quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of... Back then, you didn't have the extreme grades that you need to get into you know, courses these days. So I kind of just scraped into commerce. Yes. But ended up doing uh, first-class honours. So in the end, it's like anything in life. You've got you to be self-motivated. You've got to put the work in and you can't be relying on anyone else pushing you up the ladder. It sounds to me like you went on to do commerce straight from school, achieving first-class honours, which is outstanding. Your career path ultimately ended up in investment management or the markets per se. When did you first identify, well, if I go back a step, one of the questions we ask is, did you know what you wanted to do when you left school? In this case, it appears that you had an idea. So I, how did that form? Yeah, I had an inkling, but it, it's one of those things you don't, you know, when you're back at high school, you really don't know a lot about how the real world works. And it's actually interesting. I, I remember, well, my mum still tells the story, you know, mum's 85, but she still tells the story that, you know, how... When I was going through high school towards the end, you know, she sent me off to my uncle to uh, give me help on advice about you know, what I might want to do and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And came back from that meeting and you know, mum kind of rang my uncle up and he said, I don't think you have to worry, he knows exactly what he wants to do. And I can't even remember what we, <laughs> we talked about in the conversation, but yeah, I bought some shares from my mum when I was in high school. 
So I'm always been a saver. Mum still reckons I've got my first 20 cents. So yeah, I've been a saver. So I guess the stock market, you know, how do you, how do you make money? How do you, how do you increase your savings? Um, so that was kind of the rough path. Had a good experience with my first share purchase. Blue Metal Industries got taken over by Boral. Now the rally is, you, you look back now, it was just a pure fluke, but yeah, it was a good experience. Rolled that into Carlton United Brews. Got taken over by Elders IXL. John so Elliott. I thought, John Elliott, yeah, easy game. So through that process, I had contact with a broker. And to be honest, I thought I'd, that was the path for me to go into stockbroking. And it was really just by accident that when you're going through the university programs for potential work experience or you know, interviewing for jobs you know, in your later year, came across a brochure where they were talking about how they invested their clients' money overseas in stocks. I thought, that's exactly what I want to do. So that was turned out to be a brochure from BT, who back then were the leading light in terms of investment in the superannuation industry, had a very strong reputation. So I kind of knocked on the door and asked for an interview, and that's where I got my first job. And that was where it all started? That's where it all started. What a great transition into that field, because BT had such a formidable reputation at the time. Yeah, they had a good reputation, but importantly, in terms of you know, my learning about markets and whatever, they were engaged in all those different markets. Probably one of the first to really invest overseas in terms of you know, local superannuation managers. Yes. So it was just you know, right time in terms of my experience and getting on the, on the train and being able to be thrown in at the deep end in terms of US equities, et cetera. And really, that was probably the other, I mean, in hindsight, I didn't realise how difficult the US market was. And I can't believe they threw me in there uh, <laughs> yeah, when two years out of uni. But it was a great learning curve. Well, it certainly turned out to be a pretty steep learning curve in the end when you think about it. You started your career in 1985. Correct. Uh, as an industrial equity analyst. Then in 1986 became portfolio manager. Now, when you talk about US stocks, we're talking about the BT Select Markets American Growth Fund. Correct. Right. And that ended up being acknowledged as one of the sector's leading mutual fund performers, which is not too bad when you're only one year in. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that must have been quite a highlight. Well, as I say, it wouldn't happen today. Just imagine yeah. going to the external constituents with someone who's one year out of uni running in a US equity fund <laughs> and they just kind of you know, slam the door in your face. <laughs> uh, we're kind of lucky back then. It was an emerging industry really at, at start and BT came out with these retail funds that they wanted to manage and basically asked for volunteers. I kind of, through that process, was given responsibility for the US equity fund. Yes. And as I say, I had no idea back then just what, you know, that involved. To me, it was just a great opportunity. So I was happy to jump in the deep end. But the beauty of the US market is it's so broad, it's got every industry. It's the most sophisticated market. I mean, even today, every day, other markets follow the lead of the US. It's not the other way around. Yes. Um, so it was a great learning curve. And thankfully, I was naive because if I knew what I was in for, I would have gone a different direction. You may not have done it. <laughs> would have been, you crazy. This is just... But yeah, again, we had our ups and downs, you know, because markets are never a straight line. You have good years, you have bad years. You know, sometimes you look like a superstar, sometimes you look like a mug. But, you know, the real trick of investing is uh, getting through the different cycles and being able to roll your capital you know, over time. But yeah, and had a good experience and learned a lot. Who did you learn from within that period? Because it is significant that you were running that portfolio. And there must have been some people who really spent some time with you to teach you the art. Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. You, you're really just picking it up by osmosis, but you've got, a th you know, 
when I look back, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, you've got a certain DNA. Yes. Dictates, you know, how you behave and, and how you think. You know, leopards don't change their spots. And so you've got to have the right instincts. And if you don't have the right instincts, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you're not going to succeed. So I think when you're investing, yeah, it's really important. In terms of the type of investing we do, long-term, high conviction, you've got to have the willingness to stand on your own because everything will get questioned. I often say to our investors, look, the best opportunities I've ever seen at the time of purchase are highly questioned and sometimes even ridiculed. And so you have to have that demeanour that um, you're not a crowd follower. If you're a crowd follower and investing, you're cactus. Don't even bother. And you can see that in the behaviour of markets, you know, how general you know, markets are always following you know, what's happened rather than you know, planning for what will happen. So really important that you've got to be able to stand on your own. So to a certain extent, you've got these people around you that you know, you're observing and you're learning from, you know, whether it's within BT, whether it's you know, the people you interact with on, you know, on Wall Street, etc. But it's really developing your core skill set because in the end, you know, in any investment, you've got to make the decision yourself and stand behind it. So it's an interesting question, you know, who influenced you? There's, you, know, you read books and you know, in those early days, I was reading a lot of Buffett before anyone knew who Buffett was, yes. you know, Peter Lynch, all that, and you're absorbing all this, but you're really picking out you know, what you really inherently believe in anyway, and it's just kind of getting the rough edges off and, and the experience, you kind of you know, just build and build and build. So, you know, BT was interesting because you had two different styles within the one company, which a lot of people you know, would not be aware of you know, now, but you had a top-down macro style, which is the original Pendle asset allocation type you know, model. And then you had you know, the bottom-up, you know, Care, Nielsen, went on to be platinum, stock-picking type style. Yeah, I'm a bottom-up stock picker, so that's why you know, I ended up with the US equity fund. So very early on, I got taken out of that Pendle top-down macro. And as I say, they're two different worlds. Yes. Think differently, act differently, you know, buy different investments. But with the US equity fund, I, I was, as I say, thrown in the deep end and sink or swim. <laughs> well, you, you certainly swam, it would be fair to say. From 1994 to 1998, you assume the responsibility for the BT Split Trust and the BT Select Markets International Trust, which ended up being two of Australia's best performing global equity funds. During this period, you also went on to be head of BT's Retail International Equity Group, which was awarded International Equity Manager of the Year in 95 and 96. I also observed from the BT days that clearly this independence was a, a pretty important part of their culture and the way that they built their business. Because when you look at the people that have come out of BT, you mentioned Kia Nelson, who went on to start Platinum. There's yourself, who went on to start PM Capital. Then you've got Warwick Negus, who's part of, with Peter Morgan, 452 Capital. It's quite a breeding ground for very successful fund managers. Do you think that independence was a pretty crucial part to that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, back then you were really competing with the big insurance companies, which are pretty staid. And so I guess the culture would be, you know, a lot of very smart people, high performance, you know, sort of culture. Yes. And see opportunity, you know, go for the opportunity. So... And as I said, back then, there weren't a lot of other fund managers that you could get the opportunity to learn your craft. So I th- suspect it, you know, attracted, you know, a lot of the, the talented individuals. Yes. Uh, and it gave them the, 
I guess, the platform to kind of develop their skill set. And then, as we know, the industry has just exploded because, you know, superannuation, guaranteed superannuation came along and, you know, the money that's coming into the system. And so it's just created all these different opportunities. And the reality is, you know, from a market's point of view, we've been through a golden period. You know, that 40 years, you know, when I you know, was going through school, you know, we had inflation, double digit, you know, kind of similar to yeah. what seems to be emerging today. But basically 40 years of down rates, which means all asset markets go up. So you've got the wind at your back, effectively. Yes. So it just created enormous opportunities for so many people. And so early on, you know, BT was, a, was definitely a breeding ground. Paul, when you look at that, period of time and then you come out of it you think right well what when you look in a helicopter when you decided to move and start your own business it was, was in 1998 what prompted that yeah it's an interesting story but basically i mentioned before about those two different investment cultures yes and effectively what happened was that ken Nielsen went on to, to set up platinum yes I was given responsibility and I'm with another group of individuals that were working BT at the time. And I think they basically thought that, uh, well, yeah, we took on the responsibility, but I don't think anyone thought we'd be successful. And it was kind of fingers crossed, but we kind of shot ourselves in the foot that we were successful. We became successful. It became a bigger part of the organization. And unfortunately, with big companies, you get politics. Yes. Uh, and I won't go into all the details, but effectively, there was disruption with a parent company in New York. Right. There's these competing unmanagement cultures. And so effectively, you know, the core investment philosophy that we'd built our success on got lost in the, in the politics and process. And so from my perspective, they were forcing us to want to become one funds management group. Right. And it was like mixing oil and water. Okay. Uh, it was never going to work. And as I say, to be a successful investor, you've got to be willing to um, you know, stand on your convictions. And there's nothing worse than having someone tell you that you need to change your investment philosophy and process to fit in you know, with the sales and marketing narrative. So it was never going to end well. And so that's when we, we parted ways and I set up PM Capital. But it was a great stint. That was a, a pivotal part of your career. Yeah, well, the reality is you wouldn't, I don't think today, can't imagine the ability to get that sort of experience at such a young stage of your career because, you were, as I say, you were literally thrown in the deep end but you got exposure to all markets, you got doors open because of you know, BT's reputation you know, globally as an investor. So it was, just a, it was definitely a, a learning curve that uh, would be hard to replicate. Yes. Very interesting. I just want to go a little bit sideways. You're married to Karen. Yes. Uh, we were talking about that earlier. You met back when you were at high school. Uh, we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty rare these days, but yeah. it's uh, Fantastic. So what's that, 1978? So 22 years, 40 plus years or something. Yeah. Uh, Been one, a while. Wonderful, wonderful. And you've got two daughters? Two daughters, yes. Yeah, and grandchildren. A couple of grand, grandkids, yeah. yeah. And another one on the way. Fantastic. So, which is... Uh, that's a real game changer, yeah. uh, grandkids. <laughs> Very exciting. Uh, when you're young, having kids, you're kind of just so busy paying off the mortgage and working hard and whatever. But yeah, uh, yeah the grandkids are uh, just a wonderful experience. I bring that in because it's quite – I'm sure when you came to the time where you went home and said, Karen, look, I'm thinking I'm going to go out on my own. How did she take that? She thought, oh, are we ready for the risk here, Paul, or do we – Or you know, we're, to your point, you're at that wealth accumulation stage of life and – yeah, I don't know. I, I 
To be honest, I don't remember too much about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah when you're young, you used to do things. But, you know, to be honest, it had been brooding for 12 months. Right. Because I was, you know, wasn't happy with the situation that, yep. you know, was occurring. And, you know, I kind of knew exactly where, what the outcome would be. And your direction was going to be? Oh, it's very clear. And as I yeah. say, I like to do my own thing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not one to be told what to do by others. It's yes. just the nature of the beast. So, yes. it was, you know, when I first stepped in the door, I already knew that I wanted to basically just run my own money. So, yeah. it was just a question of time. And so, I don't know. It was probably a bit off asking her what she thought at the time, but um, <laughs> it was just... Yeah. Well, I'm sure she's happy now. It was just that that's what we're going to do. And yeah. I, I probably didn't appreciate the risk back then. Yes. I mean, you don't when you're young. And I wasn't that concerned about, you know, the financial side or anything. It was more, you know what, at some point this is what you wanted to do. So it's the right it. time to do it. Yes, yeah. yeah. Just do it. So PM Capital, logically Paul Moore Capital, it started out in 1998 and your first fund was in a global fund. Correct. Yeah. So BT, you know, ran global. And it's a funny one because... Australia's, you know, the industry's brought up on you allocate X percent to Australia and X percent international and X percent to bonds and whatever. Yeah. And I sit there, particularly on the equities, and say, well, why do you distinguish between Australia and international? Why don't you just have one global fund? I mean, if the best stock's in Australia, you buy it. Yes. The best stock's in the US, you buy it. Yes. The best stock's in Europe, you buy it. So why do you need this artificial allocation? So I always thought it would disappear from the landscape, but they still do it. Not as much. You know, there's a bigger allocation to offshore, but it's like... Everyone should just have one global fund. So, yeah, that's what we started with. Interesting time to start your business in terms of we're right almost in the throes of the peak of the tech boom at that point. Looking for value within that. But knowing that you came from a contrarian background, a value position, looking at opportunity to start a fund, often people try to start funds when the market has come right off. You're on the way up in this point. Looking for value is first and foremost in my mind, but then looking at investors. Was it easy to attract investors to start with because of your track record at BT? No. No. no it wasn't. I mean, <laughs> no. back then, yeah. The, the rally is no one really knew who I was because, okay. you know, BT kind of hit it a bit. Particularly being on the retail side because if you look over time, a lot of people have left after being in charge of institutional money at a particular fund manager. And so they're well known amongst the consultants and all those sort of external constituents. So when they leave, the institutional money follows them. When you come from a retail background, you've got you know, thousands and thousands of you know, individual investors. It doesn't happen. So effectively, we started, well, I started with scratch. I was the first investor. Right. So I put my own money in and it was just knocking on doors. After a couple of months, I think because of good performance, you know, again, we had a takeover very early, which was fortunate. Someone jumped on board and I think you know, the reality is they were kind of looking back at the performance rather than really understanding what we're about. So we got our first client, and then you know, three months later, our second client, and then it just slowly built. And I think that timing about when we did it, because you're right, TMT was you know the the tech boom. I mean, what a crazy time that was. Yes. You know, one of the favourite anecdotes I talk to my clients about is back then how everything was dot com, so pets dot com or something. You know, and it's like they're paying two billion dollars for a garage full of pet food. Yeah, you know? it was just absolutely ludicrous. But that disparity, very similar to what happened over the last twelve months between growth and value allowed us to really, I guess, highlight what we're all about because we were investing in the sort of old economy stocks, which is what they were called back then. Yes. Uh, Single-digit PEs, you know, et cetera, whereas, you know, Cisco's on 150 times or something. But then over the next three years, that unwound, and so it demonstrated, you know, what we're all about, and that allowed us to start building A track our clients. Exactly. Yes. 
And word of mouth played a big part in that? Back then, I think definitely. Yes. To be honest, it still does. I mean, you think the markets are sophisticated, but a lot of investors are not. They still chase short-term performance. Right. It just happens over and over again. Yes. When you go through your career with your own company, there's challenges that evolve. Like, when is it time to hire your first analyst? Am I going to go for a team of analysts or am I going to go for one that is going to be able to cover a broad range of markets and sectors? Like every business owner, the challenges of starting a business and growing it, and in your case, the aim is to, to generate funds under management to get sustainability for the business. How did you find that? And it, Because back then, following a crash, the tech boom crash, then you're going, it's just starting again, so to speak, with confidence and that sort of thing with investors. How did you find it? Yeah, it was interesting. A lot of it is just done on the run in your early days. Yes. Because my focus is investing. And even today, my focus is on investing. So to be honest, the other part of the equations are pain in the butt and causes you all the issues because it takes up time and uh, et cetera. And I just want to invest. So yeah, it's you know, finding people, hiring people, back office systems, you know, all those sort of things. You, know, you look back on it now and think, oh, wasted a lot of time, took up a lot of time. If you had to been able to do that more efficiently, you would have been much more time just being able to focus on your, on your true strength. So yeah, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a difficult part of the equation because it's, you know, say, I'm about investing. I'm not about going out and doing the sales and marketing and the back office and all that sort of stuff. So yes. it's a necessary evil. Yes, but an important part. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, we learned lessons along the way. And, but yeah, you just got to kind of roll with the punches. And, but yeah, that uh, hiring side is very difficult. Yes, yes. You grow a business over time and now you've got a team in place and, and the philosophy within PM Capital has remained true to itself the whole way. Your investment philosophy, it's consistent right through since the start. Do you want to explain a little bit about the premise of your investment philosophy because it does tell a lot about your business? Yeah, well, I think uh, one of the things we kind of very proud about is if you pick up our first prospectus, yeah. just read through the basics of what we said, it's exactly what we're saying today. We're pretty much going out there trying to find investments that give us a satisfactory return. It's very much rough rule of thumb. You know, I've always thought you know, 10% return, simply because if you understand compounding, you realise how good a return that is. Now, in the unusual environment that we've had, you know, we've earned more than that. But the reality is to earn 10% longer term in a normal environment is actually quite tough. Yes. Yeah, that was kind of a basic premises, you know, good business at a good price. And over time, you want to beat cash because otherwise you may as well sit at home and, you know, and just leave it in the bank, or you want to beat the MSCI because you can you know, put it in a passive fund. So they're the basic premises, but it was always just about going out and finding investments that meet our criteria, and that's what's allowed us to beat cash and MSCI over time. So it's a pretty simple process, understand the business, and then it's just waiting for markets to get emotional and drive the true inherent value away, or you know, drive the share price away from that true inherent value. And when it gets to a big enough gap, that's when we get involved. Now, what I've learned over time is just stick to what you, you know, there's, everyone has certain businesses that they understand inherently better. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to know all industries. Yeah, I think in the early days of BT, I might have uh, had a few uh, interesting experiences with biotechnology companies and things like that. And you kind of think you can get to know them. And it's like, you soon realize it doesn't matter how much work you do. You, you'll never understand them. And so you just stay away from them. Yeah, the best opportunities I've found over the 40 years, the one that's made us the most money, 
are the simplest ones. Right. The simpler the idea, the better. And I'm always telling my analyst team, if you can't put your idea on the back of an envelope, you don't know the idea well enough. Right. Now, there's a huge amount of work going into that to really understand the business and how markets behave and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, you should be able to put it on the back of an envelope. So, yeah, no, all our great investments uh, were the simpler ones. Your global fund was the one you kicked off early. Yep. And it's, it's done fantastically well, showing 9% per annum net of fees since inception. That concept of going global, how do you maintain a finger on the pulse in all the areas that you're covering? Now, I know you're based in Sydney, so you're not based in global areas. So we could go around the world, yep. but how do you keep in touch? Is, is online and the internet providing you everything you need? Yes and no. So my early experience in the US was invaluable because breadth of industry, most efficient market in the world in terms of you know, short-term news. So I learned a lot in that about a lot of different businesses. And then you just build your understanding of how different businesses are valued. But the reality is you should be able to have any business thrown in front of you and work out pretty good framework up front as to how that business should be valued. And that's your starting point. Yes. Your starting point is not going and listening to what other people are saying or what's in the broker reports or you know, talking to management or whatever. Your starting point should always be in isolation. What am I dealing with here? Because once you understand you know, how it's put together, all the questions become obvious. And then you get out searching you know, for the answers and get people's insights into that. And then once you've got those insights, then you come and bring it to a conclusion. So it's actually not as hard as people think. I mean, it's a 24-7 job, but people, fund managers, fund management groups make the mistake that they have to follow everything. It's like, no, you don't. The only thing you want to focus on at any one point of time is the mispriced parts of the market. Typically, that's only 10 or 20% of the market. Right. Forget the other stuff. Yep. And so identify where the opportunity is, understand what you need to get an answer on. And then what is easier today with the internet is the ability to find those answers. And when you've been in the industry 30 plus years, talked to so many managements, looked at so many businesses, you've built up an experience set that allows you to kind of get the answer a lot quicker. So the trick is there's a lot of noise out there that is just absolutely useless. We all waste way too much time worrying about what happened overnight and what's happening on the front page of the paper. But the reality is, if you're very, very focused, there's less that you really need to know at any particular point of time. For example, you've kicked off the fund and we go through a crisis like the GFC. And we were discussing it earlier, but liquidity markets started to get tough. A lot of things started to get tough. How do you maintain your long-term view, your patience? And I think what the listeners would probably be interested to know is how do you resist the temptation to realise an investment or hold on with the hope that it's going to come back? It's an ever-ending yeah. question. But well, part of it is when you buy an investment, effectively you're looking at what's the valuation observation that makes it interesting. Then you're looking at what are the dynamics that created that mispricing. Then you're looking at what's the catalyst to release that mispricing. And importantly, when you buy the investment, you've got your exit strategy already worked out. In other words, what should this business sell on under normal circumstances? And so therefore, what are the triggers that will allow you to exit? And I'll give you a really simple example. Back in 2003, we identified that European brewers were selling on 10 times earnings. Budweiser and Coca-Cola were 20 times plus. Similar businesses. What's going on here? Now, 
Coca-Cola and Budweiser were selling 20 times because great brand names and consistent track record and earnings. The Europeans, great brand names, but European market no growth and therefore spotty earnings track record and a lot of wasted acquisitions. But what was interesting at the time, we were at an inflection point. We were going global. The world was globalising. Guess who had the big global brands? Heineken, the European brewers. And what you're starting to see is those brands appear in pubs all around the world. So I was like, oh, hang on a minute, cheap valuation. Now they can grow their earnings. Yes. They've got a long pathway of growing their earnings. These companies might be interesting. And the beauty of when you've got a pathway to grow your earnings, you stop doing stupid acquisitions. Now, having said that, at the same time we did the background research, we've come across a company in Brazil that had 90% market share of their beer market run by very sharp people. And they told us about how they wanted to consolidate the global brewing industry. Very early stage. I thought, globalization, consolidation. So it started a pathway for us where effectively we bought into these brewers and often basically what do we think they're going to take over next? And over the next 15 years, we played 15 different brewing investments from the one simple idea. But the interesting thing is when we bought them at 10 times, we knew when we were going to sell them. When they sold at 20 times like Budweiser and Coke or when the consolidation was finished. And in 2016 roughly, around about that time, they were all selling at 20 times because they'd been growing their earnings globally. And we had the last of the big mergers between SAB and Interbrew Budweiser, which was the original Brazilians. Once they were consolidated, there was nothing left because of antitrust. And we sold the last of our investments. So 15 years before we exited, we knew what we were going to sell at. The reason that's so important that process I've just taken you through is that when you get a GFC or any other you know, Twin Towers or um, market inflection, all these amazing things that you know, have happened to markets over the time, if you don't have a really strong framework, the short-term noise will scare you out of those positions. Right. And so you won't know when you've really got a hold because it's just short-term cyclical issues impacting. Likewise, you won't be able to make an assessment if things are not going according to plan. If that path is not being followed, that gives you the early exit. Now, it's difficult to do because you tend to want to hang on to it. People don't like making admitting mistakes, so it's human nature. But that's why that framework's so important because if it's not going to plan, you need to sell and rotate elsewhere. But like those brewing companies, like Innerbrew was the first one we bought, which then got taken over, became Innerbrew, Budweiser, et cetera, big company. But there were periods then where it had significant sell-offs. Yes. But the game wasn't over because they were still selling at you know, cheap PEs, the earnings pathway was still ahead of us. The consolidation hadn't finished. It wasn't until they all came into place, that's when we exited. At the same time, Paul, when you're going through those ebbs and flows, the steely will and the determination must get quite... <laughs> it can become very stressful. Um, <laughs> and it goes back to my earlier point. You've got to have those natural instincts. You've got to be someone who's prepared to stand on their own because, trust me, I mean, 2009 was a classic. Yes. I still remember the phone call I got from someone who I thought, you know, was a, a friend, but basically telling me what an idiot I was. And it almost rung the bell of when the market started recovering. But you will get, you know, everyone questioning what you're doing. And basically back then, and a lot of fund managers fell for this, because of the uncertainty was so high, the pressure was to go to cash. Let's wait until the uncertainty disappears. Well, no. Yeah, we know exactly what happens when the uncertainty disappears. The market's already up 50%. So the issue is you've got to, it's uncomfortable, but you've got to hold your ground. 
And in fact, we kind of continue to invest because some of those post-GFC investments are the best investments you will ever see in your life. First time I saw genuine arbitrage in markets in the credit market, but some great investments. So we actually increased our investor position, held through all the volatility. It was very painful, particularly external constituents and because they're more uncomfortable talking to their clients because they don't really have the conviction that we have. But over the next 10 years, we were the number one performing fund. So it was really important that we held that conviction. Bottom line is if you want to be a good investor, you can't be one that wants to run with a sheep. You've got to stand on your line. And it's funny because, I, again, I, I give the anecdote, you know, you come out of a, a shop on you know, Pitt Street or George Street or whatever, you look around and there's no one on your side of the street and everyone else is on the other side of the street. Personally, I love that. Got the street to myself. Yes. Most people is like, something's wrong here, I've got to get on the other side of the street. Yes. And that's how investment markets work. But it's the recipe for disaster. You know, the reality is you've got to be doing things that are different from the consensus if you want to be a successful investor. That's fascinating. Tell us about the importance of your client base. You get that call in 2009, you think, oh, gosh, okay, put the helmet on. <laughs> so yeah. formulating your business over time, you have to have people that will go on the journey with you. Did you find that difficult to start with? In 1998, that's 10 years later, we're at the GFC. And then we've just been through COVID. Different but similar. Yep. Can you just give us a little bit of an insight into that in terms of building a funds management business? Look, it's hard because no one will ever have the same conviction that you have as an individual. You yes. know, that's just the way it is. So, And not everyone's built for that. So you know, the reality is in that GFC experience, some left. Yes. Because they didn't want to stick through with their conviction. And I guess that's how you, over time, you know, build the long-term team, you know, people that have got a similar sort of philosophy and process, but hopefully, you know, have learnt from my experiences, you know. The reality is, and this is a big mistake in funds management in terms of, you know, the gatekeepers. My personal experience tells me that you need at least two cycles, you know, 10-year cycles, to really build the base of uh, a proper experience to navigate you through investment markets longer term because seeing the ups and the downs and the different types of pressures and how extreme markets can become on the positive and the negative, uh, learn a number of different businesses, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, but the reality is it's very, very rare for any fund to be run by the same person for more than, you know, 10 years. I mean, yes. you'd be amazed at the dropout factor in funds over time. It's important that in terms of building a team that Ideally, they learn from your experience and you can accelerate process for them or point them to what potentially is coming down the track. Now, the reality is until they've experienced themselves, it doesn't sink in. Right. But yeah, no, it's, it's quite difficult going through those times. Sometimes you kind of go, <laughs> you feel like you're literally the only person you know, on, on, on the planet. You're by yourself and it's like you look around, there's no one behind you. And it's like, anyway, you've always got the dog there to kind of... Uh, Keep your keep your keep warm or something, but yeah, no. Investing, the longer you're in it, the more you realise what a tough business it is. Yes. Well, I just wanted to also quickly cover off on in terms of times in the market when it got tough, COVID, the impact of the markets, and and how you saw that opportunity or challenge. Yeah, what's well, interesting, and I think. Yeah, the, and this is why I say how important it is for having a couple of cycles under your belt because you learn from that. And so COVID, I'd been through the GFC. Yes. I'd been through the 87 crash. Yeah, I'd been through the Gulf War, Brexit, all those sort of things. 
And so, yeah, I think the onset of COVID, it was actually easier to deal with because of those past experiences. And the interesting thing about COVID is that, and it goes back to having a really clear framework about where you think the opportunities longer term are. And if you go back to pre-COVID, what started to finally happen after 10 years of lethargic economic growth as they tried to rebuild from the GFC, you could see it was starting to accelerate and we were getting back to a, a nice environment. And so what happened and what we were observing pre-COVID was that we think this bond bull market's coming to an end. Yes. The seeds of inflation are being sown. We did a presentation, Moneyball and Bonnado, pre-COVID, where we talked about the seeds of inflation being sown. And what that meant is, is you're going to have not only inflation starting to go up and being higher on a secular basis and a cyclical basis, but therefore higher interest rates, but that means market valuations get compressed, which means you need earnings growth, which means you probably want to be on type of companies that are more your traditional value type of companies right. that, that can handle the evolution of inflation, grow their earnings, whereas obviously you know, the growth stocks were the kind of, you know, even back then they were really starting to, to emerge because of lower interest rates. But the interesting thing, and a lot of people forget this, is pre-COVID that was starting to happen. Interest rates were starting to go up. US economy was looking very strong. I think Trump brought in tax cuts and you know, there were other issues going on. It was really starting to get its mojo back. Yes, and then COVID hit, you know, out of the blue, and everything just stopped. Worst case scenario. So in that situation, it'd be very easy to panic. But the reality is we had a pretty strong framework of what we thought the next 10 years were going to be like and where the opportunities were and what we were already doing work on. And all that happened with COVID is that disparity between growth and value that it got to a wide gap, it took one last leg up for growth down for value, creating one of the best ever investment opportunities in, and I, I hate using the term value because people kind of simplify it, but yes. to me value is just mispriced businesses, but things like Freeport Copper, which is one of the great you know, copper gold ore bodies in the world, it was even at copper prices that were going through COVID, you know, it was on a 20 or 30% free cash flow yield. And with electrification coming and the need for copper, I mean, it was just a no-brainer. But it just took from really good opportunities uh, that were appearing pre-COVID to unbelievable opportunities. And so we actually used COVID to fully invest into those type of businesses. Now, then you had to be patient because, as you know, the panic around COVID, the world's coming to an end, et cetera, et cetera. And so you had to live through six to nine months of everyone wanting to hide in the growth and you know, those sort of defensive stocks. But once the vaccine came out, all of a sudden that kind of gave the first leg of the, the switch back to value. So COVID was a bit easier because I think of the past experiences and having that really strong framework leading into it. When you look back at all those past experiences, which do you think was the, the worst or the hardest? GFC was the worst. Part of it, I think, was you know, not having been through something as severe as that. Yes. And I think the other problem, and this is a lesson you learn, so with the US, I'd grown up in the US equity market. The reason that Select Markets American Fund did so well in that five-year period that I ran it, we had a big investment in the US bank stocks, which was, you know, we made during the commercial banking crisis, the property crisis that they had over there. And so I learned a lot out of that in terms of how the system works and how the Fed responds and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the US were used to dealing with these crises. And so you have the system seize up. They give the banks temporary capital, they lower interest rates, and the process, you know, reverses. It's a formula. Yeah. 
problem with Europe, this is where we made a big mistake, is that we kind of thought that Europe would behave the same as the US, but they didn't. What they did, rather than give temporary capital, and obviously rates are low, but they actually started making them raise capital. And so created a death spiral because effectively they said to the banks, you need more capital. Longer term, you're correct, but short term, no. Yes. And you need the temporary capital like the US have done. So they forced them to raise capital, which means, okay, we're not going to make any loans. And so the economy implodes. Right. And then it's like, well, the economy is implode. You need to raise more capital. So then we'll become even more risk averse. That's so, the spiral. So, so they yep. created a death spiral. And, and so that was a big learning curve out of that. But when you're stuck in it, it was very, very tough. And the reason for that is, you know, the Europeans had never been through a banking crisis in the same way that the US because it was the European Union still coming together even today. Yes. And so you had all these different people with their different views, whereas the, the Fed looks after one country, even though they're 52 different states or whatever the number of states they have. Yeah, no, GFC was definitely a hardest because of that. And it was a good lesson for all investors that you've got to invest on the basis of what will happen, not what should happen. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all have a natural bias to think this should happen. Yeah. <laughs> but human nature or human psychology, you know, it's like, no, the, the common sense thing doesn't always happen. It doesn't you know? always prevail. I mean, look at Germany, you're buying all that gas from Russia. I mean, seriously, yes. how stupid can you be? Great. Gee, thanks, Paul. Look, that's a great segue into present day. It's quite an interesting period of time we're in and you of all people will be able to provide some insights into it. But as a global investment manager, you must look around the world at the moment and go, hmm, opportunity sets prevail. However, we have a few things to think about. Oh, I've got a lot of things to think about. Yeah. But it's yeah. interesting. I mentioned Bonnado and Moneyball and how we were talking about the seeds of inflation being sown. At the same time we were talking about that, we were saying, look, there's a lot of things coming to an inflection point. So it's not just monetary policy. It's just not fiscal policy. It's not you know, people, the way they, you know, they deal with inflation. It's globalisation. So there's no longer, well, that globalisation that created the wage pull from China and Eastern Europe that suppressed wages, that was coming to an end. So there's all these reasons you know, why inflation was going to turn. But at the same time, we we're also highlighting geopolitical was at a big inflection point because you've got the emergence of China. And, you know, the U.S. is kind of fading as, you know, they're still number one, but the dominance is dissipating. So you're getting more equal forces. Yes. And so when that happens, you're going to get trouble. And so one of the tail risks for us has always been in our notes is China, uh, Russia, you know, North Korea, Iran. And you're seeing that play out now. Yes. So effectively what we said, and we've been consistent in saying over the last couple of years, is that when you get this inflection and higher interest rates and all these other risks occurring, what it means to us is that whatever your risk profile is, because everyone has a different risk profile, you know, I can handle a lot more invested position than, than other people, but whatever your risk profile is, dial it down a notch because you want to have more cash than you normally would have so that when you get these disruptions like we're going through now, you can use that cash to be proactive rather than reactive. And I'm sure at the moment a lot of investors are really kind of consumed by everything that's going on. But one thing they've got to remember is that a lot of stocks are down 30 to 50% plus, a lot of really good stocks. So their mindset at the moment should be about when am I going to buy those stocks? Yes. Not about when am I going to get out of them? Yeah, but the geopolitics was obvious at a, a turning point and really what we're seeing now is you know, that turning point occurring. If we could just segregate that and maybe drill down a little bit for the listener, let's just, if we went around the world, you cover the world. So let's start with, say, for example, Russia, the impact of Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. 
and then oil, the subsequent consequence of that with gas, you alluded to Germany. How is that going to play out? Do you see on your 5, 10-year, 15-year time horizon, firstly, we could look at that. Secondly, the impact with that with the US. Yeah, yeah I like it. We've, you we've could got, talk all day about this. Yeah. I mean, there's so much going on because the other inflection point I haven't mentioned, so we've got inflation and monetary and fiscal policy, we've got geopolitics, but we've also got net zero, which is the greatest transformation of the industrial base that yes. we're ever going to see. Yeah. It's all hitting at the same time, and that's why everyone's heads are almost spinning in terms of trying to work out what's going on. So, yeah, again, you've got to kind of step back from that and remember the, the one rule uh, of investing that passes the test over time is valuation. Valuation is the most critical factor. If you buy at the right valuation, you'll get through all these ups and downs because a lot of them you can't predict. Who would have predicted COVID? Who would have predicted Russia going into Ukraine? So there's so much going on and effectively what Russia did is rather than inflation coming back, interest rates normalising, it accelerated short-term inflation to an unacceptable level. Right. And that's meant that the Fed and the uh, European Central Bank have had to really catch up because they were so out of the game. And basically they panicked. And that's what the markets are worried about at the moment is that they're going to make a mistake because these clowns that 12 months ago were telling you, don't worry about inflation, we want inflation, yeah, we're going to let it run hot for a while. 12 months later, it's like, oh, we'll come and save you. So the guys that cause the problem are going to save you. Everyone's worried they're going to make the same mistake, just in a different form. So there's a lot of that going on. And then, you know, who knows what happens with Ukraine, but you've also got Russia, uh, sorry, China and you know, Taiwan. And it's the same issue, but on a bigger scale. Putin told everyone he was going to invade Ukraine for many, 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 many years. And we just didn't believe him. China's been saying Taiwan for many, many, many years. I think everyone's thought process on that has changed a little bit recently. Yes. And how does that impact you in terms of your investment style? Look, it's hard because you can't predict the unknown. You revert back to that valuation. Is the valuation cheap enough to live through that? Where is the best valuation? That's where you want to be invested. But it goes back to my earlier point. In the environment that we're in now, whatever your risk profile was, just notch it down a bit so that you're never fully committed. You've always got something so that you typically underestimate how far it will go in terms of stock price or markets or whatever. And now it might not happen. You know, my personal view is, is that things are getting really interesting on the buy side again. Yes. So you want to be thinking about what are the real opportunities I want to now add to on this correction. When you look at these opportunity set, I suppose the role of being able to go to cash within your portfolio is pretty important. Do you ever implement that? Look, you know, we don't have to be fully invested, but the reality is over the life of our fund, we've been 85% invested. Yes. Now, it's a hard one because we've been in an environment of consistently lower rates, which means that you always wanted to live through the dips and be fully invested. Going forward, you know, as I said, I think you want a little bit more cash than you normally yes. would have. Yes. But we're totally dictated. If we find an investment that meets our criteria, we buy it. Yep. And therefore, if you find enough of them, we're fully invested. If we don't, we're half invested. So I still think, you know, I mean, we're quite small in the scheme of the world, obviously. We're, you know, just a little speck. So we still should be able to find enough stocks that we want to invest in to be decently invested. Yes. But I would reiterate over the next decade that it's better to have a little bit more cash up your sleeve so that you can always be in a proactive mindset. Paul, Inflation and interest rates, it's on the tip of everyone's tongues. You've, t- you've covered it in a way already, but I just want to get your insights. 
there is a school of thought that the back end of 24, there may be a reason for them to start to taper off on rate rises. Now, what's your school of thought on that? Well, the reality is there's a reason for them to back off now. Yes. Rates have moved very quickly and people, if it happens over time, people can adjust. But when it happens very quickly, they can't. And that's usually what creates, you know, downturns and whatever. So the reality is you'll find inflation will probably be, in terms of the reported numbers, a bit more persistent over the next six months, purely because of the lag effect. These numbers are garbage, you know, because I remember two years ago when we're, rates were zero, there was no inflation, supposedly. And I used to say to my clients, okay, I'm telling you, the seeds of, of inflation are being sown. And guess what? There is inflation. Anyone that has kids that go to private school that can tell me there's no inflation in the system. I mean, seriously, I mean, gone through the roof. So yes. it just wasn't being picked up in the numbers. And so likewise now, that lag's coming through and it will take a while to fall out the back half. But I suspect the second half of next year, you'll see the inflation numbers drop dramatically. Right. Commodity prices have already fallen and then the services will come down. So the reality is the Fed doesn't need to do too much more. But because they made such a big mistake, the in letting the genie out of the bottle, the risk is that they just want to make sure. Yes. Just like they wanted to make sure the economy recovered even when everyone was screaming, don't, zero interest rates, they're useless. If you can't borrow at 2%, you're not going to borrow at 1%, you're not going to borrow at 0%, you're making a big mistake. So that's the issue. Now, a lot of people are screaming at them now, guys, you need to back off. And they're starting to make a few comments along the lines that saying, oh, we're listening to that. So they're all kind of aware of it. Unfortunately, they're not practical people, they're academics, so they always want the confirmation in the lag numbers, whereas the practical person sees what's happening at the coalface. So rates have gone up enough, mortgage rates have adjusted. The reality is they just need to back off the rhetoric now and, and have the conviction that the inflation cyclical will slow down. Right. And the true, you know, in my mind, the true thing that they should be doing is backing off a little bit, but holding so that they don't put themselves in a position where we get too aggressive a downturn and then they ease again because that's what will really create inflation the next time. Yes. They just need to not go as high as they thought they should and just keep it there for quite some time. Remain consistent. Yeah. You know, you, your question was 24. It's going to happen in 23. Right. Could you take the same approach with the Reserve Bank here in Australia? It looks like they're already... Yes. Uh, they're a little bit... Of, you know, they've actually adjusted a bit quicker. So I think, yeah, they're inkling that is that they don't have to be as aggressive with that view in mind how do you see the forecast looking forward for equities then it's definitely better than it was three months ago because stocks you know the market's down 25 percent we've got great companies down 50 percent so i think in the next two or three months you're going to get a really interesting buying opportunity is my personal opinion now a lot of it will be depending on just how the fed reacts with monetary policy and so there could be leads and lags with that but there's a lot of things jumping on in our radar now. So as I said, people should be thinking about that cash that we put aside before. Hmm, there's some interesting opportunities coming out. And if we do get another leg down, that's going to be a great buying opportunity in my mind. Yes. Some rapid fire questions. That's been really interesting. You, we've covered off on that geopolitical part, but when we look at issues here in Australia, labour, what do you think about that? Is it going to continue to be hard to find good employees to sustain the productivity required? Particularly we're seeing it here in Western Australia. You're seeing it everywhere around yeah. the world. And that's a function that they stimulated too much. Yes. Therefore, everyone you know, had a job. But also the work from home, I think, I reckon there's just a lot of people that aren't really working. 
I mean, I shake my head. In Sydney, uh, you drive into work on a Monday and it's really quiet. That's weird. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are busier because people are going back for three days and then Friday it's quiet again. Yes. And I was like, they've got into these ultra-long weekends and everyone says, oh, yeah, but we're working. Yeah, well, why is Netflix you know, volume spiking on a Monday and a Friday? And then guess what? On a weekend you can't get in a restaurant, footy stadiums are packed, COVID goes to sleep on the weekend. It's amazing. <laughs> and then Monday, it magically reappears and we're all going to be careful again. So, yeah, bottom line is that's overlaid what was already a short labour market and an ageing demographics. It created this other situation. It's very hard to get, you know, fine people. Yeah, and that's obviously you know, you know, wage pressure. So I think it's just going to take time because we need to get back to where we have immigration or the temporary visas and so people that do want to work overseas are coming to the different jurisdictions i mean the uk was the same effectively with brexit all the eastern europeans had to go home yes so you just had this sort of perfect storm and so yeah it's going to be tight for a while i'm sure the supply will come in a bit but that's the decade that we're going to the power is going back to to labor again supply of labor leads us to the supply chain restrictions that have occurred around the world are we seeing some easing of the supply chain restrictions that are coming out, constrictions out of, say, China? Are you seeing that un- ease up a little bit? Everything I see from the US companies is a lot of that's easing. Yes. I think it was a classic case because you had this interruption and therefore everyone panicked and then you're over-order. And then at some point, not only does demand fall, but then they realise they've over-ordered, so you get the double whammy. And that's a little bit what's happening at the moment, so it's hard to read the tea leaves. But there's still shortages. Certain car makes you can't get for three years. Yes. So at some point in the next 12 months, that'll change dramatically. But, yeah, I think it's just a combination of, you know, the labour issues we talked about. Also, I think companies in general have been a bit too tight on capital investment. So that needs to catch up. Yes. Which goes back to my earlier comment about the next decade, it's going to be more for those value, more traditional economic uh, sort of old economy stocks because there needs to be a capital cycle. So yeah, but you know, bottom line is, yeah, labour's, uh, you're definitely going to see wage presses be sustained, which is why the embedded inflation rate is going to be underpinned. Right. Moving from the supply chain into electrical vehicles, that thematic. So for example, your future facing or battery style minerals, metals, how are you seeing that? Are you getting involved in that area? So one of the reasons we bought Freeport Copper yes. uh, post-COVID, because copper is one of the big Metals that are required for electrification, uh, not only with batteries, but you know, offshore wind, connecting everything to the, the grid, etc. And the reality is supply is going to be tough because it's harder to find new deposits. It's becoming more difficult in all the jurisdictions. They're raising taxes, etc. And as a result, the companies haven't been investing the way they used to. So we think, again, you're going to have ups and downs. Like at the moment, you've got to, on the back of you know, fears of recession, the copper prices have come back. But we think over the next 10 years, and particularly the latter half of the decade, when electrification really accelerates, that's when you're really going to get your boom in commodities. At the moment, electric cars are coming through, but in volume, they're not that big. But it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, the UK says you can't sell a, a combustion engine after 2030, I think. It yes. Is, or, uh, so they're all being banned which means you, whether you agree with it or not, it's coming. Yes. And so I think the second half of this decade is when commodities will get really interesting. And that's why we want to stay the course. It's like my comment about Budweiser when we owned it. There was periods where it came back, but the story hadn't played out. So you want to stay the course. And that's what you want to do with things like copper. Lithium is a little bit of a different story because it's an emerging industry. And so it's not a stable environment to invest in. 
But yeah, I'm not sure how they're going to get all that lithium that they need for batteries. Puts a real question around that in terms of the other future-facing metals, cobalt, lithium, etc. What is PM Capital looking at for the longer term though? Just like the car manufacturers are looking to find deposits, what sort of companies are you looking at to take that 10, 15 year view? Yeah, you look for the best ore bodies. So the, the biggest, longest lasting, lowest cost. That's why we went to Freeport. Yes. Effectively, they produce their copper for zero because of all the gold credits. And so it's the, you know, one of the highest quality ore bodies out there. And they've also got big operations in North America with the safest jurisdiction, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what you're looking for. Uh, you've got to have confidence that the low cost means that you'll withstand any environment. And so if you're wrong on the macro short term, you're going to get through it. You might go through a difficult period, but you're going to get through it. We definitely stay away from high cost producers because if you get your timing wrong, you can be finished. So it's pretty much that simple. Yes. Long lasting, low cost ore bodies. That's what we look for. Flowing onto oil. When we look at the combustion engine and its lifespan, how do you see oil and energy? Energy per se. Yeah, oil is an interesting because it became very cheap and we invested in Shell and Seanook and you know, Woodside Petroleum because our basic view is that Oil demand is obviously going away at some point. Well, when I say going away, it's declining because you're getting rid of cars and then you'll get rid of trucks and et cetera, et cetera. But our view is it's going to be a lot slower than the degradation of supply. And what I mean by that is with net zero and the activists and the politicians all screaming at companies to reduce their CO2, well, no board's going to, you know, wants to increase in uh, oil production. So effectively, we got through this environment I've never seen before where oil price recovers, free cash flow goes through the roof because they're not reinvesting in their business and it's all coming back to shareholders and giving you great dividend yields. I mean, Sinook's on three or four times earnings. They're going to give you like a 15% dividend yield. It's phenomenal. But here's the interesting thing, and, and it highlights how common sense is not necessarily followed longer term. 12 months ago, the CEOs of Exxon and Chevron were hauled before Congress and berated for increasing oil production, even though it's only a couple of percent. Absolutely berated. And members of Congress were saying, why aren't you reducing production like they are in Europe? Twelve months later, Putin goes into uh, Ukraine, energy crisis in Europe, gasoline prices in the US go up, hauled before Congress and berated why aren't you increasing oil production in the US so we can reduce gasoline prices? Right. And you sit there and go, are you kidding yourself? You've spent the last 10 years demonising these people for investing and now you're saying, why aren't you investing? And you wonder why there's no investment because they're not going to stick their head out. Uh, you know, they've been caught before Congress. So I think people are going to be surprised about how commodity prices, oil prices are staying at higher prices for longer because of this lack of investment. Yes. And it's purely because, you know, there's just no, everyone wants net zero, but they don't really understand the implications of having to get there. And so it's creating a lot of disruption. So, yeah, no, I think it's, we still hold the belief that this is a decade of commodities. Well, moving just sideways on that gold, and I'll dovetail that in with Bitcoin. <laughs> the how, about gold. I pair, how about I pair that up? I've uh, got to be careful. I firstly would love I, to I hear think Bitcoin's you. a scam. It should have been banned by the regulators. I mean, it's just a way of creating a new a way for people to kind of think that they're investing in some sort of asset class. But the reality is it's just a computer game you know, where you get tokens if you kind of solve a problem. It's like you know, playing computer games at university. Chinese worked it out and banned it. 
guess what? It's also the biggest emitter of uh, CO2, you know, because of all the you know, electricity going into getting these supercomputers working. So it's pure speculation that arises when you have, you know, zero percent interest rates. Someone comes up a way of convincing people that it's some sort of new digital currency, but it's not. And you wake up every day and some Russian hacker's stolen $80 billion from you. It's like, that's a store of value? I mean, you're serious? So the authorities uh, should never have let it happen, in my opinion. Now, gold is an interesting one because historically I've never invested in gold. I treat it as just another commodity and it's got huge inventory. Yeah, copper has you know, four weeks inventory. Gold has 20 years inventory because people store it in their vaults and et cetera. But you know, there's also industrial and jewellery and all that sort of demand. But as soon as I started thinking about the inflection inflation, I'm thinking, well, what do people see as their inflation hedge? Yes. Gold. And if I'm right on interest rates going up, the US dollar goes up, negative for gold. That's going to create an opportunity. So we started doing work on gold companies uh, seriously for the first time in my career a couple of years ago. At one point, they got interesting and we nibbled away and then they kind of ran away from us, so we sold them. But it was always our view that with this recent dollar strength, that would create the opportunity in gold stocks. And the interesting thing is, over the last three months, Newmont Mining, the biggest gold company in the world, has declined 50%. It's now selling on a reasonable valuation. So you've got the thematic of inflation, you've got the valuation in the bottom quartile of its history. That's when we get triggered. Yes. And so we've been actually starting to nibble away. In fact, I'm visiting a gold company straight after this podcast. But we think it's interesting for the first time. So we'll probably rotate some of our energy and copper story out into gold. Now, part of it will depend on price and if markets give us the opportunity. But I think it's definitely something that's worth thinking about for your portfolio. Yes. Thanks, Paul. The last question I had just on this area is the triggers looking forward. For investors now, I know offline beforehand we were talking about cybersecurity, and we've talked about lots of things with regards to the current global situation. But when you look forward, we've talked about the role of cash right now and and the opportunity set that might present itself or not, but might. When you're looking at your portfolio, what are the triggers that you're actually expecting in your gut when you come down to it? When you look at the next few years. Where do you think it's probably going to end up? We've already said, right, interest rates could tail off. Inflation starts to normalise. Well, I, th- I, th- I think interest rates have moved too quickly too soon, so they yep. need to back off, consolidate. Yep. But uh, I think they're not going back to low levels again. And then it's a watch and see if inflation, you know, the next easing cycle where the inflation takes another little bit of a leg up. And yep. so, just, you know, pre-COVID interest rates were 3 to 4%. They're now going to 4%. Everyone's going, wow. It's no big deal, uh, longer term. So the the issue for me is will interest rates, the next cycle be 4 to 6% range. Yeah, my catalysts are that the next easing cycle, you'll see just how tight the world is on commodities. And with the pressure off the dollar, you'll see commodity prices go up. But again, I still think it's going to play out more like the 7 to 10 year period. So we're going to wait until that occurs before we kind of exit those positions. And I think near term... Once the Fed does back off, I think stocks in general are pretty good. I mean, if we don't have a recession, stocks are... I've never seen so many cheap stocks in my life. Right. So if it's a a mild recession or it's just a recession that's more in numbers, but because the the hard part is when you've got inflation printing at 7 or 8 or 9%, nominal spending is still very strong, but it just so happens that real spending is supposedly weak. 
I'm not sure how to interpret that, to be honest. I think at some point, you know, the Fed will back off and the market will be very, very strong. And the only question in the back of my mind is when we're looking at these companies at the moment, is there another 10 or 15% before you really want to buy it? Yes. Or is it time now? So it might be over the next three or four months where you kind of, you start nibbling now. Yep. And if it keeps going down, you just get more aggressive and more aggressive and more aggressive. But I think it all comes to an end in the, the next two or three months in terms of the downturn. I just want to move completely to another field, and that's your history with regards to AFL. Yeah, right. Okay. So, look, <laughs> My thanks other a passion. lot. Yeah, your other passion, and it's quite, it was quite evident that you're a, a former GWS Giants board member, and you had a lot to do with the inception and support of the academies within the GWS Giants and the Sydney Swans. And I know from my homework that you personally have supported that financially to the tune of a lot of money to help get these academies off the ground. How have you found that? The, I'm sort of interested on two points. One, the status of football in New South Wales. Sydney have just come off a great yep. uh, year. But two, how are GWS going? You're clearly invested both emotionally and financially over the time. What do you think? Oh, we need another podcast on this. <laughs> well, we're running out of time. Sorry, yeah, I, I could have brought uh, that up earlier. But That's uh, an interesting one because, it, I mean, bottom line is having grown up in Sydney where there was virtually no AFL when I was playing as a junior, uh, lack of uh, resourcing, coaches, culture, all that sort of stuff. So I guess when you're in a position where financially you can help to develop the game, you, know, you kind of uh, have a desire to do it because you know, my personal view is that the only way that you have successful, sustainable teams in Sydney, such as the Giants and the Swans, is if you have local talent coming up through the system. And you've seen it come to a head this year. And we always said this, you know, we tried to tell the AFL over and over again, but you can't tell them anything. The reality is... It costs more to kick players to Sydney. So the only way that we're going to offset that is if we have local talent who wants to come home to Sydney, it balances you know, everyone going home to Victoria or South Australia. You can't sustain two teams here if they're totally sustained on interstate players. It just won't work longer term. And guess what happened this time? Yeah. How many top 10 draft picks have the, the Giants lost to going back home factors? I mean, Jerry and Cameron, you know, premiership with Geelong, going back home. So that was the whole reason for the academies. It was going to be a 20-plus year investment because, you know, it takes generations to kind of really build up that local, you know, player base. In my own view, they've shot themselves in the foot because they got rid of all the academy concessions. Victorian College used to have father-son and they said nothing about that. And as soon as we get one or two players coming through the academy, they all run around like the sky's going to fall in and GWS is going to win the next 25 premierships, you know. Bottom line is they need to invest longer term and keep the rules stable so that you can get a return on your investment from investing in these young kids. But how many guys came out of the top 10 from Sydney last year? None. None. Top 100? One? I mean, year after year after year. So in one hand, the game has, has leapfrogged in Sydney in terms of exposure and people's knowledge of it through the Swans. You know, Swans have done a great job over 30 years developing um, you know, their brand and so yeah, they get in the grand final and everyone's behind them. But in my opinion, if you go to the, the long-term you know, fundamentals, it's best shown in how many 
kids that were born in Sydney, played their junior footy in Sydney, get drafted each year, and it's pretty much non-existent. So we're at ground zero, and uh, until they Still, pull their heads out of the sand, yes, it ain't going to change. I mean, but just have a look at this year's trade period. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, Hopper, Taranta, <laughs> Bruin. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's just one way traffic all back home. So, but when you were approached to go on the board of GWS, what year was that? That was two thousand. Honestly, can't remember. I think uh, it was sort of two thousand fifteen. Could have been. Yeah. Could have been. Yeah. And at that point, you're also injecting a lot of money into these academies. So, does that role of comprise of of getting these academies up and running fall back to private investors, the league or the the GWS? club and not the AFL because well there's parts to that ultimately it's the AFL's responsibility they're the custodians of the game so they need to set the framework and have a stable framework because if you're getting zero out of the draft at the moment yes to change that over a 20-year period and that's what it's going to take requires a significant investment it's just like capital markets who's going to invest if the rules change every year yeah and that's exactly what happened to me. I was misled on what they were going to do. And so I said, enough's enough. And so my funding ceased because there's no certainty and they changed the rules and we get one or two players, you know, look as though they've got prospects and, you know, the Melbourne clubs start jumping up and down and, uh, you know, carrying on. But look what's happened. All the players are going back to Victoria. We warned them, we told them, they wouldn't listen and it's happened. Right. Um, so bottom line is the primary responsibility is the AFL. They set the rules. Then it's up to the clubs because you can create that framework, but if they don't run with the ball, you know, and so you look at the Swans, you know, they've put a lot of resources into it uh, and then building over time. And GWS need to be uh, in the position to be able to do the same thing. But the most important thing is that they need stability of framework so that they can, you know, get the best out of that investment. I could go Fan, on forever. Fantastic, <laughs> Paul. I know. I can tell. I can tell. It gets uh, me right for, sometimes. For the, list, for the yeah. listener, I can see Paul's body language getting very, very emotional around this subject. So it's he's he's very passionate. Look, I I will. I am very conscious of time. So look, I just wanted to finish up by saying this has been a fantastic insight into your career, but also your views on the global markets and also investing per se, long term, the secrets around it valuation and the importance of it i think for the listener you've given us a real insight into growing a funds management business as well which is phenomenal what you've achieved over as you say a 40-year period of dedication to your craft being here in perth you're based in sydney your time is valuable and we do on behalf of euros hartley's really appreciate you taking the time out to join us and giving us that that opportunity to listen. So, and I know on behalf of the listeners, they'd be grateful as well. So, look, thanks again, Paul, for taking the time. No, it's been a pleasure. And uh, as uh, I could talk all day on my two favourite topics, uh, investing in AFL. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been a pleasure being here. Good on you. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.